أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم اللهم صل وسلم وبارك على سيدنا ومولانا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم سبحانك اللهم لا علم لنا إلا ما علمتنا إنك أنت العليم الحكيم وعنده مفاتح الغيب لا يعلمها إلا هو ويعلم ما في البر والبحر وما تسقط من ورقة إلا يعلمها ولا حبة في ظلمات الأرض ولا رطب ولا يابس إلا في كتاب مبين Last class we left off talking about the battle of Badr and we covered the highlights of the battle and how the Prophet Sallallahu and the uh, the companions of Medina ultimately prevailed and won the battle uh, and they were tremendously outnumbered but alhamdulillah Allah Subhanahu wa ta'ala was merciful with the Prophet Sallallahu and the companions and the angels fought and 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 we discussed all of these things so what is left for us to discuss uh, we'll pick up where we left off which is to talk about what happened in the immediate aftermath of the battle from the casualty point of view 14 died from the companions six from the muhajirun and eight from the ansar and in our history Oftentimes we think of the Sahaba as one, you know, block of people. Assalamu alaikum. Where's my, where's my high five? How's it going? Good. Oftentimes we think of the Sahaba as one chunk of people, one block of people. But within the Sahaba there are some variations from the point of view. For example, we consider the people of Badr as a special class of the Sahaba. We consider the ten that have been promised paradise, a special class of the Sahaba. We consider the wives of the Prophet salam, a special class of the Sahaba, etc. So the people of Badr are a unique, a very high rank amongst the Sahaba. And the Prophet salam, he says later in the seerah, maybe Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala looks at the people of Badr and he says, you can do whatever you want for the rest of your life, you are forgiven. Because of the ultimate sacrifice that it took to stand on the battlegrounds on the, on the day of Badr. There was no guarantee of victory, there was no rational way that the Muslims would have won, and they sacrificed everything, and alhamdulillah they were victorious, so therefore they, they received from us this, this honor. Uh, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the Qur'an, He talks about, he, he likens this, or one way for us to think about what this means, is He talks about people that, that spend money in the beginning of a project, Versus people that spend money, here we're talking about charitable money, towards the end of a project. You know, لا يستوي منكم من أنفق قبل الفتح وقاتل. It's not, you're not the same. The people that spend money and fight in the way of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala before the opening of Mecca, they're not going to receive the same re- reward as those that spend and fight afterwards. Because when you come afterwards, you're kind of joining the bandwagon. So those, and both of them are, are khair, Allah says. Both of them have reward. But of the two, one is higher than the other. So the people of Badr for us have this intense uh, category. And one of the ulama of Islam, uh, uh, a former Shafi Mufti of Medina, Al-Barzanji, he compiled, the Barzanji, the one of, with the famous Mawlid uh, of the Prophet Sassam's birth, he wrote a poem outlining all of the names of the people that died in the Battle of Badr and the Muslims that fought in the Battle of Badr and also those that fought and died in the Battle of Uhud. Uh, it's called Jaliyat al-Qadr 
in Arabic and it's been translated recently into English. It's called uh, removal of distress. And it is a custom in the Muslim uh, community that we recite this poem on the night of the 17th of Ramadan to commemorate the Battle of Badr and to commemorate the shuhada, the martyrs that, that died in the Battle of Badr. And this is a form of tawassul. This is a form of intercession that we mention these names before Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as the greatest of the companions, as those that made the ultimate sacrifice, hoping and praying for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's forgiveness and mercy upon us. So this is a great uh, you know, tradition and I'm very happy that it's, it's translated recently so you can, you can pick that up. As, and from the Quraysh side, 70 died. So there was a lot more, uh, proportionally speaking. And as we mentioned, the major leaders of the Quraysh, they're the ones that died as well. So this was a tremendous loss. They had a loss of leadership essentially. So there becomes, what ends up happening is there becomes a leadership problem in, in, in Mecca. And the Prophet Sallallahu as he's walking around, he's speaking to the dead, those that have died from the Quraysh. And he says, have you found what Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Taala promised you to be true? Because I found what Allah promised me to be true. And then the Sahaba, they thought this was strange. They said, are you speaking to those that cannot answer you, that cannot hear? And then the Prophet Sallallahu said, they can hear me just like you can hear me, but they do not respond. Reminding us of our belief that death, and I, know I like to repeat this, that death is not the end of life, but is the movement from one form of life to another form of life. So those that have died, it's not like the game is over, it's not like we can't communicate, it's not like they don't hear, etc. No, there is life after death, for sure, in our belief system. And this is a story that you know, reminds, us, reminds us of that. In Mecca, the news is received of this tremendous loss. It's like a catastrophe, because they were sure, absolutely sure that they were going to win and rid Arabia of this menace, rid uh, you know, themselves of this concern of the Prophet ﷺ. And the fact that not only did they lose, but they lost all of their leadership was a tremendous psychological defeat for them, as well as military defeat. Abu Lahab receives this news, and you know, he's going crazy. He's, he, he can't believe that they're lost. And by this time, Al-Abbas, uh, he has become Muslim, but he's kind of like kind of keeping his Islam undercover. And in the house of the, of the family, you know, these are the people that are the family of the Prophet Abu Lahab comes and he speaks to one of the members of the household, uh, Rafa, who narrates this story. And then Abu Lahab is, is sort of lamenting out loud what happened in the Battle of Badr. And then Rafa, who had become Muslim, he's like, oh, those are the angels. And he gets excited when he's hearing the stories that those are the angels you know, that fought in the Battle of Badr. So Abu Lahab goes crazy and he beats him. And Rafa, who narrates the story, he says, I was very small and weak, so I couldn't defend myself. So Umm Fadl, who was in this, uh, you know, within, you know, she could see this, she pronounced on Abu Lahab and injured him. And subsequently, Abu Lahab dies a few days later from this injury. But not only does he die, he, he develops some sort of uh, like abscess that the Arabs at that time thought was a bad omen. So they left him to die and left the body to rot, afraid to touch it, because for them that meant that this was this bad omen. You see, all of these details that we have in the seerah, they remind us of a, of a bigger principle. That this is the end of, of what these, you know, uh, what would you expect from Tabbat Yada Abi Lahab and Utab? I mean, what would you expect would be his end? 
Um, and that's how he ended. You know, his, the, the body was, was decomposing. It was so bad that they had no choice but, you know, just to dig a grave and just pluck the body, you know, push the body in because they didn't want to see it anymore. But that was sort of how he ended. And this is a theme. You know, all of these major enemies, the people that were insulting, the people that were cursing, the people that were hurting the Prophet Sassam, the people that were torturing women and children, and etc., they don't have a good end. Not by the hands of the Prophet Sassam, but by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah ta'ala takes care of this and gives us in that a sign. And because of the defeat, the Quraysh, they decide, okay, we're not going to mourn. We're not going to publicly mourn. We're going to forbid mourning. Because we don't want anyone to say that we're hurt. So they're trying to demonstrate like a, a hard face that we don't care. You know, we're not going to be defeated and we're going to win the next one. And we're, not, we're so confident we're not even going to mourn. No big deal, etc. Which is obviously very difficult because they lost a lot of people. Now, of course, as the news reaches Medina, the reaction is exactly the opposite. The Prophet ﷺ, there's still business to be, to be done in Badr. You have to bury the dead and they have to rest and this, they, the people that are injured. So the Prophet ﷺ quickly sends people, messengers to go back to Medina to inform them of the victory. Because one of the problems, one of the subtle themes that sometimes we forget throughout the seerah is information and misinformation. So Quraysh plays on this a lot. So Quraysh had sent false information to Medina through its different ways that the Prophet ﷺ had been killed. It could be as easy as, you know, a Bedouin is passing by and, you know, someone just throws out, oh, we killed, the, we killed the Prophet. You know, so he goes back and he tells the people of Medina. It's just sort of, you know, rumors. That's how rumors start. So the Prophet ﷺ is always cognizant of this. His intelligence gathering and his, uh, the speed of communication for this time was of, of paramount importance for him. So the first thing he does is he dispatches these two riders. They go to Medina to inform them of the victory of the Prophet as the companions return from Medina, on the day that they entered Medina from Badr, uh, Ruqayyah, the daughter of the Prophet ﷺ, passes away. And that's why Sayyidina Uthman عنه, didn't uh, participate in the Battle of Badr because he was taking care of his daughter, uh, his wife rather, sorry, uh, back in Medina. So she dies as the news of victory enters Medina, we are also saddened at the same time at the death of one of the daughters of the Prophet ﷺ. Another major issue with the uh, fallout of Badr or the aftermath of Badr is for the first time now we have a new issue, a new legal issue, which is the spoils of war. What we call in Arabic Al-Anfal. And you know, obviously all of Surat Al-Anfal or most of it is about this subject. It was revealed during this time. Now that the the, there are two armies that are fighting. At this time, this is what would happen. The one army is defeated. So all of the things of the other army are taken into the possession of the winning army. All of the swords and all of the metal and if there's food and if there's money and if there are animals and of course there are prisoners of war. We'll get to that in a second. So all of these sort of come in. Now the Prophet ﷺ has to figure out what to do with this. Uh, and that's why uh, throughout this time warfare and you know for you know one can even argue even till to, till today uh, is 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 a source of profit for people you know soldiers of fortune right we have this term this concept people fight and they get paid or mercenaries they get paid now of course that's not why the sahaba were there fighting but that's a, 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 for for sure an outcome of these battles and it will be this theme 
you know, follows us throughout the seerah and throughout Islamic history. And therefore Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reveals these very explicit verses about how the spoils of war are to be distributed. So the Prophet ﷺ, he takes his fifth, what we call in the Sharia al-Khums, and then the rest is distributed amongst the Sahaba. So with revelation, a lot of these uh, thing, issues that could become difficult are easily resolved uh, because it's revelation. There's you know, nothing to say after that. The Prophet ﷺ stayed in Badr for three days, like I said. You're just wrapping things up, and then they go into Medina, and this is when he finds out that his daughter has died. Uh, and on the way... Even though they had prisoners of war, two of the prisoners of war were executed before they arrived at Medina. Al-Nadar uh, bin al-Harith and Uqba ibn Abi Mu'it. The rest of the prisoners are taken to Medina. And I like to highlight some of these things so we understand some of the lessons and perhaps some of the conceptions slash misconceptions that people might say, levy at Islam about war and uh, prisoners of war, etc. Especially from the seerah of the Prophet Now remember this was war. And at the time of war, there were some people that committed what we would consider uh, war crimes. So these people that were executed were the people that committed these types. They, they went over what was considered normal. The rest of the prisoners are taken to Medina. They're fed and ultimately they're ransomed. So they end up finding their way back to Mecca anyway in, in, in any case. And they go back you know, in full health and all of that kind of stuff. But there are certain things that the Prophet ﷺ cannot overlook, especially when someone else's life was taken, or someone else's right was taken. The Prophet ﷺ, as a judge, as a military leader, as a head of state, whatever the term is that we use, it's his obligation you know, to see that justice is carried out there. Whereas when it comes to his own person, he, he'll forgive and he'll forget and he'll move behind, beyond it as we've spoken about earlier in, in earlier classes. So these two are executed for those war crimes, and then the rest are taken to Medina. When they got to Medina, they have this problem. Now they have these, these, these prisoners of war. That's another new element that they had. Again, you know, this is all new stuff for the Muslim community. So the Prophet ﷺ, he takes the, the counsel of Sayyidina Abu Bakr and Sayyidina Umar. Again, reminding us, amru shura baynahum, as Allah says, that you know, there has to be shura, as we say, there has to be consultation. I mean, has to, with the Prophet ﷺ is the wrong word. For us, there has to be. But for the Prophet ﷺ, he's teaching us that this is how you consult, you ask. It's not just all unilateral. Sayyidina Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu, he says, you know, Wallahi, these are our like family and kin, like they were related to all of these people, so why don't we ransom them? Meaning we know that their families back home will pay for their release and therefore we, we bring in income to the state and then we free them. Sayyidina Umar radiallahu anhu, he, had a, he was like, yeah, that's a good idea, but let's, ki let's kill some of them. So we can send a message that we're not scared. You know, Omar is very de decisive. He wants, to, he wants their, the, the message to be clear that it doesn't matter of the family relations. If you wrong people, if you kill the innocent, it's over. So the Prophet ﷺ went with the opinion of Sayyidina Abu Bakr. And there's no dissension. You know, uh, Sayyidina Omar is not kicking and screaming. Actually, this story, Sayyidina Omar is the one that narrates it. And he said, and then the Prophet ﷺ took the opinion of Sayyidina Abu Bakr. He didn't take my opinion. And that is what they did. They ransomed them for, for various, you know, 4,000 dinars, 1,000 dinars, 2,000, whoever, whatever they thought that they could, these families could afford. And I'll remind you of a story that we said way, way, way in the beginning. We don't have to repeat it now, but one of the prisoners of war was Abu al-As, who was the husband of the daughter of the Prophet, Zainab, 
السلام, and we, I told you how he was actually he finds himself uh, captured a few times or a couple times and this was before the prohibition of, of marriage with the polytheists etc and uh, Zainab Lady Zainab to ransom her husband and to make the point clear that you know she wants him unharmed she sent as his ransom a necklace that belonged to her mother Khadija alayhi salam so when the Prophet saw the necklace he started crying because he remembered that this was Khadija you know so he his emotions were uh, Zainab understood that and remember I told you the famous hadith that said Aisha she said I was never jealous of any woman except Khadija, even though she never met Khadija, because the Prophet always mentioned Khadija, even after she passed. Oh, these people that used to visit us when, when we had Khadija. Oh, this uh, food, we used to eat this the time of Khadija. Oh, this, we used to do this the time of... So everything was Khadija, 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 alayhi salam. So the Prophet had, a, as we say, a soft spot. You know, his first wife, his, his love, his, his spiritual anchor, all of the difficulties that the Prophet endured during the period of Mecca, was with the support of Sayyidah Khadija. So uh, Abu al-As is ransomed and, and sent back, and we talked about his story uh, earlier. Remember I said that the Battle of Badr took place in Ramadan. So uh, towards, you know, the, the slightly in the second half of Ramadan. So Eid is around the corner. So this really is Eid. It's not only the first Eid in Islam, because this is the first Ramadan of fasting, but this is Eid also because we, they won. So now they are a force to be reckoned with. Now they are a state. Now, I mean, they were all the time from the time of the Hijrah. But the military victory solidifies this. And uh, it's a tremendous psychological boost to the Muslims. Yeah, there's, they're small in number. Yeah, they don't have all of the supplies that they need. Yes, there are tensions within Medina, but they won. And what a victory it was. I mean, they won and they defeated the, the, the leaders of Quraysh. And it's because of this battle that Abu Sufyan ends up becoming the head, essentially, of Quraysh. Because all of the leaders are, 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 you know, are wiped out. But because it is a tremendous victory, all of the stakeholders of Medina now start paying more attention to the Muslims. So the hypocrites, they're paying more attention to the Muslims. The Jews of Medina, again, and I, and I highlight because we record all of this and you don't know what ends up happening with these recordings. We're, we're talking about some of the Jews, not all of the Jews. This is not an essentialist argument, but we're talking about histories. So we'd have to make this disclaimer. So some of the Jewish tribes that did not want the Prophet ﷺ to come or did not welcome the Prophet ﷺ coming, they start taking notice. And it is uh, essentially these type of tensions that end up paving the way from the Battle of Badr to the Battle of Uhud, which is the rest of what I want to discuss today to make the link, what happens in between Badr and Uhud. And as I said before, uh, this part of the seerah, we usually mark it by these battles, not because Islam is bloodthirsty or anything like that, but because these were unusual events. The amount of battles, and when we say the dates and the months and the days, it's like every month there's like a big, somebody's trying to attack Medina. And so that's why historically we remember them. Just like we will always remember March 15th as the uh, you know, tragic events of New Zealand. And I hope that we remember this day and we commemorate this day and pray for our brothers and sisters every year. The, so these events are abnormal, which is why you remember them. So I want people to keep that in mind. I always like to just put in these little, uh, 
the glue, I think, sometimes is important with these historical data points so we, we understand how to make sense of it. Ramadan passes into Shawwal. On the 2nd of Shawwal, which is essentially right after Eid, there is another military excursion. So we haven't even, not even a month has passed, not even two weeks has passed. This is called the Battle of Banu Salim. Immediately after Badr, the Prophet ﷺ receives intelligence reports that other tribes are now raising arms and marching towards Medina. So after the victory of Badr, we know the Quraysh are paying attention from a long time ago, but after the victory of Badr, we have the hypocrites, some of the Jewish tribes, and some of the neighboring Arab tribes. Now they're really worried. Like, oh, this is like a big deal now. This Medina thing and this Islam thing and this prophet thing. I mean, this is a real problem for us. And they're always thinking about trade. What's going to happen with their livelihood? The trips of the summer and the winter. They're always concerned about that because Medina is right in that you know, pathway. It's right on that corridor of trade. And if the Prophet ﷺ had wanted to, he could have cut off the trade as those were some of the initial scaring uh, points that fear, that the Quraysh feared. So the Prophet ﷺ received news that some neighboring tribes have amassed arms, were marching towards Medina to attack. Um, and the Prophet ﷺ sent 200 men and they went to an area called Al-Qudr. But the enemy was scared, fled, but they left 500 livestock. That's a lot. 500 split over 200 men after the khums is taken, but the fifth is taken by the Prophet That's a lot of booty to be taken from that excursion. So these things end up becoming not just for Islam, but at that, this time of the world, until there are, you know, everyone has like a formal standing army. The, this is how the, the state of Islam grew financially. And any state grew financially. And that's, that, that economic component is an integral part to understanding history and ancient history. Not just for us, but for what's going on around this time. So that's, you, know, you have to keep that into, into consideration. That's a lot. That, that's, a, that's a big payday. Now again, the Prophet didn't seek this out. He heard that they were coming to him, so he went to, to defend. But this is you know, one of the outcomes. After the Battle of Badr, Quraysh, they wanted to, again, kill the Prophet wasallam. So the story is that one man named Umair bin Wahab and his, we can say, best friend Safwan ibn Umayyah, they are sitting in the, the part of Ismail, the Hijr of Ismail on the Kaaba one afternoon discussing you know, their desire to assassinate the Prophet Umair said, you know, I would love to go and do it, but I have this debt. Uh, I think one of Umair's children was uh, son was a prisoner. So Safwan's like, you know what, I got you covered, I'll cover your debt, I'll take care of your family in Mecca. You know, uh, he didn't say tawakkal Allah, but you know, he said, go and, you know, do the deed. So Amir, he goes, he gets his sword, he sharpens it, puts on all of his stuff, and he marches towards Medina. And he walks into Medina to the mosque of the Prophet And just think about what that means. That the enemy, who's known, walks into Medina, into the mosque of the Prophet I mean, how did, that, that's the kind of society that it was, right? It was open. It wasn't, you know, somebody was at the gate and, you know, prevent, you know, let me see this, let me see that. It was like an open uh, thing, whereas some of the Muslims couldn't enter Mecca that way. To enter Mecca, they had to find like a Meccan that would like guide them to safety. But in Medina, they came. So Umar ibn al-Khattab, 
you know, he sees him, he spots him, and he's like, oh, this, this is trouble, this guy has trouble. So like his hand is on his sword, he, he, he walks with him, they walk inside, and uh, the Prophet ﷺ, he sees from the corner of his eye that Umar has his hand on his sword. So the Prophet ﷺ says, you just, just take it easy. And he says, Umar, what do you want? And Umar is like, uh, I want you to, to release my son. And he's like, is, is that it? He's like, yeah. He's like, well, what about that sword that you have, you know, at the ready? And Umar is like, well, you know, he's just like, whatever. He fumbles. And then the Prophet ﷺ says, weren't you sitting the other day with Safwan in the Hijr of the Kaaba? talking about how you wanted to kill me. So he's, you know, he's like, because you know, don't forget that this is, he's a prophet, right? He's receiving revelation. So he, know, he says he has that advantage. So Umair is shocked. So he says, I testify that you are the prophet of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Because I mean, how can he know what just happened between these, not even the other Qurayshi people knew. So he comes into Islam this way. And, and what's interesting, as I was preparing the notes for, the, for today, I, I, I was thinking about the difference between or the impact that groupthink has versus one-on-one. -on -one. Um, and a lot of times, unbeknownst to us, we are influenced by the group that we are around. Or what our colleagues say, what our friends say, what our families say. And we don't really stop to critique if that's even something that we should think in. We just sort of, yeah, 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 yeah. And then you sort of like the conclusion is done. But we never, I mean, I speak for myself, very rarely do you stop and be like, is that even true? Is that even right? And that's why in these stories, they're always one-on-one. -on -one. But when you get somebody one-on-one -on -one and you talk to them, you really connect. You really connect with these people. And that's why they're, it's a complete misconception. They have an image in their mind of the Prophet ﷺ. Very much the way people today have an image of Islam. That, that is completely wrong. That, that's completely, he's, not, he, he's not there to take their livelihood. He's not there to ruin their life. He's there to guide people to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That's all he cares about. He has no worldly desire in that. And as we read later in the seerah to prove this point, when all of these tribes come into Islam, the Prophet never interferes in the inner workings of their society and their politics. All he does is send a sahaba to teach them the Quran and how to make wudu and how to pray. As far as who's the leader and who does this and what we would call today you know, internal affairs, he doesn't meddle with those internal affairs because his message is not a message of the dunya. His message is the, is the message of the akhirah. So he's not there to, to mess anything up. So when they get him one-on-one, -on -one, they see that he's genuine. And I've seen this in my own life. You know, when, you have, uh, when we were in school, somebody told somebody I said something about them. And then somebody comes and tells me they said something about me. And now all of a sudden, all day, I'm like, this is my enemy and I got to fight him, you know, at lunchtime. And he's, he thinks the same thing. And then by the end of the week, we're best friends. What, what happened in that? Allah says, maybe the one between you and them is en enmity. Allah will make them your close, intimate friend. Because of that human touch. So all of these people... Of course, this is the Prophet, we understand that. But, but they, they come in this contact and they see him. And you see what he said to Umar, relax, take it easy. You know, he knows Allah has his back. He says, what, what, are, you, what are you doing? So, and he just testifies. So he becomes Muslim. His son is released. So the Prophet said, send, teach him his religion. Teach him how to recite the Quran and send his prisoner free. No dunya, just, just let go. He goes back to Mecca and he starts calling people to Islam. And he, this is one of the great Sahaba that went back you know, in a time of war and, 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 and uh, you know, brought people 
into the fold. But the story doesn't end there. Safwan, he hears that Umair became Muslim. He's like, you know, I had this guy's debt. I had this guy's back. He, went, he was going to kill the Prophet. He came back Muslim. So Safwan's like, I'm never going to talk to this guy for the rest of my life. And he's really, really, you know, he's, he's upset. He leaves Mecca because he thinks that the Prophet is now going to kill him. Very simple-minded. So he goes to Jeddah, the port city, which is a little bit away from Mecca. Umair goes back to the Prophet He says, I have a request. And the Prophet says, okay. He said, please leave me Umair. Because Umair is like my best friend. You know, he's my, he's my mate. I don't, I don't want bad for him. He's like, I mean, a whole life of, of friendship. Okay, he's not Muslim yet, but you know, we'll work on that. So the Prophet says, okay, I'll leave him to you. And he said, promise me his safety. He said, I promise you his safety. So the Prophet took off his turban and he gave it to Umair. And he said, give this to Safwan as a sign of, you know, that's like a big deal. Uh, it's like a sign of um, the Prophet's turban was distinct. It was seven meters long. Uh, it was very, you know, noble. It was like his crown, if, if we could call it that, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So Umair goes to, to track down Safwan. And he's carrying the, 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 the turban of the Prophet ﷺ, which is distinct. And when he sees it, he understands what that message is. And then Safwan becomes Muslim as well. So, so these are two people who had plotted to assassinate the Prophet ﷺ. And that's sort of, you know, what happens with them. Uh, just a note on the Prophet's turban, because I, I, like, I like that, the Prophet's turban. Uh, the Prophet saw some seven meters. That's pretty big if for people that know fabric and stuff like that's that's a you know that's a muhtaram like we say. It's a really proper proper turban, and the the Prophet's turban saw some the closest image that we can think of of what it looks like is probably the way that the Afghans wear their turbans, uh, which are which is big, and the Prophet saw some would would bring back bring down the back which is called al adaba and he would bring it down to the middle of his back. And this was the Prophet's turban. Now, many of the turbans uh, in the Muslim world, we don't, uh, you know, we don't have that part. Some of us do, but the Afghan way—that's pretty much what the Sunnah would have looked like of the Prophet's turban, sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Just a little factoid. Sometimes that's important. Similar to Umair and Safwan, the same thing happens with another another guy named Fudala, who also wants to kill the Prophet Sallallahu And we, we read in the seerah, I mean not necessarily at this time, but it's related, so we mention it here, that the Prophet Sallallahu was making tawaf, and he was making tawaf as well, wanting to kill the Prophet Sallallahu So he kind of like bumps into the Prophet Sallallahu So the Prophet Sallallahu looks at him and he puts his hand on his chest. He's like, Fudala, what's up? You know, what's going on? And he said, the minute he put his hand on my chest, I be, he became Muslim. And then he kissed the Prophet Sallallahu You see, so this is what the, was the Prophet's way. You know, th- this was his way with people. He, he didn't want to hurt people. He didn't want to harm people. And he's, he's, he put up with a lot. We've been talking now of all of these things that he's put up with. I mean, somebody that wants to kill you, the last thing you're going to be thinking of that transaction is you'll be hugging and kissing. You, know, you wouldn't be thinking like that. But this is the effect that he had on people, sallallahu You can only imagine the effect that he has on us for people that are devoted to him and love him when we enter him into our life, sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Back to Medina, another problem that brews is this, after the Battle of Badr, really starts to ignite the, the tensions between some of the Jewish tribes and the Prophet 
one of the elder Jews of Medina, his name was Shas bin Qais. And very disturbed with the victory of the Battle of Badr. And he's Medanese, so he's from Medina. So he's hanging out with some of the Medanese, you know, Muslims. And he's sort of like, yeah, yeah, you know, you guys won the Battle of Badr. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's like, you remember that Battle of Ba'ath? Remember we talked about the Battle of Ba'ath? It took place before Islam between the Aus and the Khazars, like a civil war between the Aus and the Khazars. They're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he, look, he looks at the Khazars, he's like, didn't you guys say, you know, these lines of poetry about the Aus? They're like, yeah, yeah, we said that. That's right, yeah, that's right, we said that, yeah. And he goes to the Aus, like, didn't you guys respond and you said these? He's like, yeah, that's right. So he starts creating this tension, so they start fighting. So here are these Muslims, Aus and Khazars, different tribes, they were about to, you know, seriously fight at each other's throats and then the Prophet came upon them and he said how can you call to the Jahiliyyah when I am amongst you this is what we're working against and this statement this is what we're working against this was his mission in Medina so although we talk a lot about the battles and the, the you know massive events that happened what was happening day to day day to day the Prophet was teaching the people in the mosque day to day the Prophet was teaching them how to pray he was teaching about Salat al-Jum'ah. He was teaching about, you know, learning how to recite the Qur'an. All of the, you know, tens of thousands of hadith that we have come from the, from the Prophet ﷺ teaching in Medina. So don't forget that that's what's happening. So when he sees it, he's like, what's going on? You guys are going the wrong direction. This is not the way. So the Prophet ﷺ is now becoming astute to the fact that these, some of these people don't want him to succeed uh, in this message. In this message. Some of the, 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 the Jews would, would tell him, Assalamu alaikum, instead of Assalamu alaikum, peace be, they would say Assalamu alaikum, which is like saying poison, you know, be on to you. So as we say, as we used to say growing up, those are fighting words. You don't, you don't say that to somebody. You know, you don't, you don't, that's like, you know, basically wishing them to die. So these little stories that we have, you can start to see some of the, the agitation. But the real agitation at this period between Badr and Uhud is the story of Banu Qaynuqa. Banu Qaynuqa was one of the larger Jewish tribes and they were in Medina whereas a lot of the other Jewish tribes were outside of Medina and if you remember when we talked about the constitution of Medina I talked about the borders so when the Prophet ﷺ defined Medina as constituting all of these tribes Jewish tribes that is with the Muslim tribes and Medina he also defined the borders so let's say downtown and you know suburbs or something like that just to make it simple but this was a tribe that was in Medina they were all metal workers, so they all had wet. They were the people, you know, blacksmiths and etc. They were making steel. They were making shields, swords. They had enough weapons to arm seven hundred of their own people. So this is like a militia that's larger than the Muslim army itself. Better we talked about three hundred. Uh, the Banu Salim we talked about just a few minutes ago was two hundred. We're talking about very few people. These had seven hundred fighters armed and ready plus the collusion with Quraysh began at this point at this time but what was the you know the 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 hair that broke the camel's back is that there was a muslim woman who came to the banu qaynuqa part of town and she was doing business and she her face was covered she was wearing niqab which not all the women wore, by the way, uh, in Medina, but that's for another time. 
And the man was kind of like insulting her. He's like, let me see what you look like, you know, trying to grab her, you know, the veil to, to see, which, you know, you don't do. That's very offensive. So he steps on her garment. So when she gets up to go away, her garment falls off of her and she's like half naked, essentially, which, you know, which is very, very embarrassing. And everyone's laughing at her. And then there's a Muslim guy that sees this and he comes to her defense and he kills this Jewish guy. So there you go. That's you know, a bad situation, gone worse. Now things are really, you know, we're talking about 700 fighters and arms, <coughs> etc. That's, you know, that's a lot of force. This lead, leads to a 15-day siege of Banu Qaynuqa that takes place in the 15th of Shawwal in the second year of the Hijrah. Uh, Banu Qaynuqa, they were aggressed against. I mean, this man shouldn't have been killed. That was wrong. But there's a larger issue that the, the details of this story is that previously they were intimating to the Prophet ﷺ their aggressive stance against the people of Medina. And remember that there is a constitution, there is a document that all of these tribes signed that talked about equal rights and responsibilities. And for them to have this aggressive, passive-aggressive posture and to arm themselves, this rep represents a security threat for the people of Medina. The issue of the woman and the man in the marketplace, this is just the care that breaks the camel back. So I don't want people to think that that's the story. So why did the Prophet siege the, the, these people over, over this incident if, if the Jews were treated wrongly, etc.? It's more, more than that. That's why I said it's the hair that breaks the camel's back. Anyway, Abdullah bin Ubay bin Salul, who we talked about earlier, who is the leader of the Munafiqun. Before Badr, he didn't declare his Islam. After Badr, he, this is where he, when his hypocrisy begins. So he says publicly he's a Muslim, but we know he's not a Muslim. So he goes... Uh, to the siege with the Prophet ﷺ, he's begging the Prophet ﷺ, he's begging the Prophet to leave Banu Qaynuqa. Just leave them alone. They're my people. I'm related to them. I've tra tra trade with them, this and that. And the Prophet ﷺ, you know, he keeps like looking away. And then finally he says, okay, you know, I I'll leave them to you. Uh, we won't take revenge, but they have to leave. They have to leave their weapons and leave. And the majority of the tribe of Banu Qaynuqa, they leave and they go north towards the Levant. And very few of them uh, stay behind. And this is like a court judge decision that the Prophet allows essentially Abdullah bin Ubay bin Sulul to intercede on their behalf. So these are not things that are set in stone in the Sharia, but were with, are within the purview of the ruler, are within the purview of the judge, etc. You know, what we call Siyasa Sharia. The second of Dhul Hijjah, the second in year two of the Hijrah, this is the battle of Al-Suwayq. Now Abu Sufyan is in charge of Quraysh. He wants to take revenge on the people of Medina. So he secretly comes to Medina one night and he starts meeting with some of the Jewish leaders that he knows are against the uh, Prophet ﷺ. They kind of give him some information. Uh, he burns some property and some livestock. The Prophet ﷺ sends people after him. They're not able to capture him. So that's like this excur or excursion, we should say, not battle. Uh, also in the month of Dhul Hijjah, in the second year of the Hijjah, this is the marriage of Sayyidah Fatima to Imam Ali, alayhim salam So just I highlight that this is when this takes place. You know, or she's you know coming of age, and Imam Ali marries her, and we know that uh, they live next to the Prophet and you know they had very uh, meager means, 
and this was one of the this is on purpose that the daughter of the Prophet and his son-in-law uh, his cousin as well Ali, Imam Ali they had meager means right this is a message for all of us that are looking to get married right uh, having the five day wedding on the elephant uh, parachuting in you know the six months honeymoon uh the, the, the 15 outfits for the wedding, right? I'm not mentioning any names. I'm just saying, guys, I mean, this is... People ask me, what is a bid'ah? Honestly, that's a bid'ah. That's a problem. There's a problem with that. There, in some countries, it's so bad that people take out loans, personal loans, to get married. And what do they spend the loan on, the money on? They, they spend it on bling. You know? I can't have, how can my daughter have a, a house, an apartment that has less than six flat, flat screen TVs? I mean, honestly, I mean, what's wrong with watching on your phone? I mean, it's just, it's just the screen is just as good, right? I mean, you know, what's wrong with that? Why do you need six flat screen TVs? Why do I need, you know, all of the linens that will last until the day I die? I'm really happy with just washing the sheet and putting it back on the bed. I mean, really, we have to think like that. If, if the daughter of the greatest creation, the greatest man who's ever lived and ever will live وسلم, got married with almost nothing, then there's no reason that I should expect my daughter will have more than that uh, what I care about is, is she marrying somebody like Imam Ali and if you have a son you know, is, he, is he marrying someone like say the Fatima, I mean that's what matters honestly, seriously the stuff doesn't matter stuff comes and goes all the time and if you've lived long enough, you will know that. It stuff comes and goes all the time. Uh, and people that understand that, they have a, a, a healthier perspective. And a lot of times people that have that perspective are not even religious. But that they understand that things are fleeting. Ideas matter. Character, for us, character matters. That's the stuff that doesn't go away. That's the stuff that lasts. Uh, but you can't control, you know, your income and your... No matter what you think, you can have all the degrees and acronyms that you want and your name. But, uh, you know, I remember when I left medical school uh, and, and I was forced politely by my parents to pursue the PhD, I remember people were saying, oh, you know, PhD, poor hungry doctor, MD, money doctor, you know, things like... Nothing set in stone. Nothing set in stone. So, some just, you know, a tangent. Just Just... Putting it out there. Muharram of the third year of the Hijrah is the battle of Dhul Amr. Again, intelligence reports to the Prophet ﷺ that there are neighboring tribes that have raised arms, are marching. The Prophet ﷺ went out himself with 450 of his men. On the way, they came across a man named Jabbar from the tribe of Banu Thaliba. That was the tribe that the Prophet ﷺ heard was trying to attack them. He becomes Muslim. And then he guides the Muslims to the uh, enemy. Enemy is scared. They retreat. But this time the Prophet ﷺ camped out there for the entire month of Safar. To show the force. To show the neighboring tribes that they're not going anywhere, that they're strong, etc. And it's normal at this time that you would go somewhere and you know, spend a few days. Like when you read that the Prophet ﷺ finished the Battle of Badr and waited three days. I mean for us that's kind of like why don't you just go back? You know, but you have to think about how long it takes to get somewhere and the type of supplies that your animals need and food it needs to get somewhere and how much you can possibly travel in a day. As a matter of fact, there's a very wonderful project, Sira project, that's taking place in Jordan. 
And they are actually looking at the seerah from this point of view. They are trying to calculate what would be the average speed that the Prophet ﷺ marched with his troops or his men in all of these excursions during the Fath of Mecca, uh, taking into consideration the things that I just mentioned, trying to put actual dates. Uh, okay, they went to the Battle of Badr, we read in the, in the seerah, but how long did that take? What time did they leave Medina? So how many hours or how many days did it take to get there? To make us understand that sometimes, you know, camping out somewhere for a month, that's normal. That's, that's not like abnormal. Anyway, just put, putting that out there. Uh, the next major issue is the, uh, the death of Kaab ibn al-Ashraf, who was also um, like, you know, mega Islam hater, enemy of the state, uh, also happens to be from a Jewish tribe. He was very handsome, very well known, and a poet. And when you read in the seerah that somebody's a poet, that's like the equivalent today of somebody owning a news station or somebody owning a newspaper or somebody having like a, a, a channel, having editorial power to publish commentary on certain issues that influence opinion. Okay, so I don't want to think, oh, he's a poet, like, you know, he could rhyme. No, that's not what, he's not like a hip-hop artist. He's like media. This was the way things were communicated. It was in the, in the, in the Arabian Peninsula, it was communicated in poetry. So what he does... <clears throat> is he goes to Mecca and he starts uh, issuing his editorial comments, i.e. his poems, cursing the Prophet and cursing the Muslims, praising the people of Quraysh, praising the dead, the deceased of Quraysh in the Battle of Badr. So the people of Quraysh, they come to him like, oh, what's up, what are you doing? Uh, and he basically pledges his allegiance to the people of Quraysh against the Prophet Okay, Remember the constitution of Medina. So this is a, a violation of that. This is against that. Okay, so everything that will follow, you won't, you won't be able to make sense of it if you don't remember that he pledges his allegiance to an enemy state at a time of war against the Prophet ﷺ. He returns to the uh, Medina and he does the same thing. He starts cursing the Sahaba, cursing the Prophet ﷺ with his poetry, etc. So the Prophet ﷺ says, who's going to take care of Kaab for me? He has insulted Allah and his Prophet. So Muhammad ibn uh, Musallaman said, I, I will take, I will kill him. And you know, elaborate story, I don't want to get in the details because of the interest of time. He does this and he is assassinated or you know, he, is, he, is, uh, he is, is killed. So this is a major part of what happens in between Badr and Uhud. In Rabi' al-Akhir of the third year of the Hijrah is the excursion of Bahran. The Prophet ﷺ took 300 men there was no fighting and this, whole, this lasted about a month. And then the last thing we need to discuss before the Battle of Badr is the last, uh, the Battle of Uhud rather, is the last main military excursion that takes place in Jamad al-Akhir in the third year of the Hijrah. This was led by Zayd ibn Haritha. Quraysh wanted to go north to trade, but wanted to find a different pathway rather than the pathway that, that went near Medina. So they wanted to find an eastern pathway. So they said, okay, we'll just do that. We'll find a new pathway and maybe we don't even need to worry about this problem. One of the early companions, his name was Sulayt ibn Nu'man. It's a funny story. Before the prohibition of alcohol. So he's out drinking, drinking with his buddy. And his buddy was a Qurayshi who was not a Muslim. So they get drunk. So the Qurayshi gets so drunk that he tells the, the companion about this new pathway. But Sulayt is not as drunk. 
So he said, oh, this is a golden opportunity. So he leaves his drinking party and he goes and forms the Prophet. This is probably, you know, there is some benefit, right? The Quran says, maybe this is one of the small benefits. All right? of, of, uh, so he goes and he tells the Prophet, check this out, that they're going to do this, you know, maneuver. They're going to go another path around Medina to the Levant, etc. So the Prophet, he sent Zayd to intercept, which he did. And this was a huge sort of victory again for the Muslims. But at this instance, with this military excursion, this was another, the, the Quraysh was now at a fork in the road. Either they attack the Prophet ﷺ, which they end up doing, which is what leads to the Battle of Uhud, or they make peace with it. I mean, at this point, there's no other way. They can't circumvent Medina. They can't not deal with the Prophet ﷺ. They cannot ignore Medina as a force, as a state. They cannot ignore the Prophet ﷺ as a person of military strength, etc. And this is exactly what leads to the Battle of Uhud which we will talk about next time insha'Allah. Wallahu ta'ala a'la wa a'lam. I'm not endorsing drinking by the way. I'm just saying that, you know, there is some, uh, the Qur'an says some manafa, so maybe this was one of them. But it is universally prohibited, just in case anyone thinks that I have, I'm saying otherwise. Anybody have, so I went a little over today, but there were so many things that b before the Battle of Uhud. Any questions or concerns? Brother Mohsen. Um, you mentioned that in the Medina, some of the ladies did not wear the niqab. Yes. Uh, can you uh, explain what the dress code was? <clears throat> well, yes, some of the women didn't wear niqab. How do we know? Because in some of the hadith, the description is a woman who had red cheeks said such and such like to Omar or said such and such to the Prophet. Well, how do you know she had red cheeks? Well, obviously her face was not covered. And these are the type of evidences that the ulama used to establish that the niqab is a sunnah, not an obligatory part of the Muslim dress, or Muslim women's dress. Um, I don't have statistics, of course, of how many uh, covered or not covered, but when we read about the women of Medina participating in the battles of the Prophet ﷺ, I mean, you can only imagine that's a pretty intense type of situation. So... I would say probably maybe half because the wives of the Prophet uh, they covered which was something special for them and I could see many you know probably wanted to emulate that and that's how it, it, it comes into our books of fiqh uh, you'll read in, it's very common to read in a classical book of fiqh that you know a woman when she's out in the marketplace and this and that she needs to cover everything except her hands and her feet you know but when you dig into that, you realize that that's really a cultural uh, interpretation, that that's not necessarily a fard, an obligation, that it's a sunnah. And in today's world, the way that the ulama understand it is that it is really a cultural, in some cultures it's completely normal. I mean, I know women that cover their face that don't wear hijab, meaning that when, they're, when they leave their country, they don't even wear hijab. But covering your face... Sometimes it's a way not to draw attention. Sometimes it's a way not to get pulled over at a checkpoint. Sometimes if you're going out to a wedding and you're all decked up, you don't want to show that. So you cover it. I've seen, I mean, because I have a Saudi family, so I've seen that many times. So I know now that I'm older, I know that it's not a sign of religiosity. It's just simply cultural. But the problem with the niqab that uh, the discussion sort of leads to another issue is that if you are in a society or a culture in which the niqab is not normal, and then a woman starts wearing niqab, 
It can have the opposite effect. It can create a fitna. And religious dress or religious, uh, my man, religious dress and um, and the like should not be used as a way to differentiate one's practice of religion. So I can't dress a certain way and make that and make an assumption that I'm more like pious than you, or or, or you know, or you're more pious than me. So in, in communities in which the niqab is not normal, the ulama actually advise that a woman shouldn't wear niqab. And then, you know, the men say, oh, but, you know, brother, my wife is so beautiful and she's going to create fitna. And, you know, yeah, yeah, right, man. Okay, you know, that's like, you know, my wife is so beautiful too, right? But that's to me. Th- that, that, in the text, that means like the woman is so beautiful that if everyone saw her, they would pass out. Right? Have we met a woman in which we all passed out? I mean, come on, man. Be, be realistic. So uh, that's the skinny on the... On the niqab, the only the only caveat or the only thing I would add to that about dress and religiosity is that the ulama they tend to dress a certain way as a as an indication that I'm the person you can ask the question of. And to highlight this story, our teachers taught us this or narrate the story of Elijah ibn Abd al-Salam, who was a great medieval Egyptian jurist. Uh, he is called Sultan al-Ulama, that's his title, the Sultan of all of the, the scholars. Al-Aiz ibn Abdul Salam, he was on Hajj. And he was, you know, wearing the, the garments for Hajj. And there was a man in his group uh, that was making a mistake. So he told the man, you're making a mistake. And the man's like, you don't know what you're talking about. Leave me alone, Hajj, etc., etc. So like the next day when they took off their clothes and Al-Aiz ibn Abdul Salam put on his jurist garb, the man listened to him. So sometimes the ulama dress like that, you know, or have a uniform, or because like, i.e., this is um, you can ask me the question, but that's not like to say I'm more religious than you. That's that's something else. That's the only caveat to to, to that. But that's the skinny on the niqab. Yeah. Probably at times, yeah, because of the dust and the heat and traveling and yeah. I mean, even the men would would cover their face. Even till now, it's very, Bedouins will cover their face and when they when they travel and they walk, it's that's normal. Yeah. Uh, the stories of the If there are Jews in Medina now. I think I, I don't know that much about it, but I think one of the problems with that question is the only thing we know about the Jews of Arabia really only come from Muslim sources. So there are sources. I don't know if there's that many other... uh, There might be one or two. Uh, There are some ancient uh, Jewish historians. They might have talked about that a little bit. Um, But the Jews of Arabia, I think vis-a-vis Jewish history, are a minor thing. For us, it's a major thing because this is the, the theater of what we're discussing. Uh, and the Jews of Persia and the Jews in the Roman Empire, they are much more significant because they are the ones that form you know, the, the Talmud and, the, and the, the real commentary on, on, and produce Jewish authority. The Jews of Arabia, not so much. As a matter of fact, I don't even know if we know what happens to them after they leave. Uh, so that would need some investigation. But I would say very little information exists outside of Islamic sources. So we have a lot of sources. But to do a proper historical uh, 
analysis of it, we'd have to look at some of those, I think Flavius, some of these other ancient uh, authorities we could look into. Archaeological, I'm not sure. I, w I would doubt that. But I think, I think people know where Banu Qaynuqa was and where Banu Quraida was and where Khaybara, I mean, geographically, I think you can, there are atlases of the Sira in which you can see where they are and you can probably go to those places now. Uh, but I don't know about archaeological stuff. I don't know. I just, I don't know. I'd have to look into that. Yes. Of course. Ashkenazi Jews are Jews that come from Muslim-majority regions. Uh, sorry, sorry, Sephardic Jews. I'm sorry. Sephardic Jews are Jews that come from primarily Muslim-majority origins, or are Arabs, like Iraqi Jews, Egyptian Jews, Syrian Jews, uh, Yemeni Jews, of course. Yeah. And there are Jews in Africa itself, in like black Africa, Tunisia, sorry, Morocco. Okay, I can't name all the countries here. No, no, that's what I'm saying. Not, not that we know of. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's one of the stories that the turban is like you're carrying your shroud. Uh, it's a reminder of death. Well, now you do, yeah. I think the, the turban is just, it's wrapped around the head and then it's caused to, to come down in the back. That's the sunnah of the turban. But, um, I mean, there's so many variations. I mean, like the Sudanese, they have a big turban, uh, like the Prophet's turban, but they don't have the adaba in the back. The Afghanis is the closest. And then the, in the Hijaz, uh, the Yemenis, they have like, it's called, the, I guess, the Hijazi wrap. I mean, they even have like names for them now, like how they're wrapped and tilted. Um, uh, what's another distinction? A turban. The what? Tuari people, okay. And then all of the tariqas, they have like different turbans. Uh, like the Naqshbandis, they have a, a certain way that they wear their turban. Um, and then there's like the, the Azhar like trying to make sense of modernity with the past uh, turban. I mean, all these, so it's, it's all, all from the sunnah of the Prophet Sallallahu uh, Alaihi Wasallam. The Syrians, the Levant, the Syrians, the Lebanese, they have like the, the very like professionally done turban. I sat with a guy once in Damascus and I asked the how do you do this? And he like tried to explain, it was so complicated. I mean, it's like, it, you, you actually send your, your tarbush to a guy he wraps it for you, and you pay him to do that, and then you receive it back. No one knows how to do that. It's like an art. Um, so, you know, they can be, like, really big. The Iraqis, they're like that. You know, they go out like that. So, I, all kinds of stuff. But any, any circular wrap on the head would be called a turban. I guess you could write a whole, like, book on that, Brother Mohsen. Maybe that should be, like... Yeah, Abdullah. Uh, uh, ICCP, I think. 
uh, it's a live stream because after after a month of doing this none of you are going to come it's going to be me be my myself and everyone's going to be at home just watching yeah so then i'll just be at home too and i'm just like, like one time i did the class i was in egypt and i was like i told brother Moses like i got to keep the class and by the time it was like two in the morning, I was so, I was like in my pajamas. I just made sure like the camera was like above here. I was like lying down. I was like, I just, I'm so dead. It was not, it didn't, didn't go so well for me. Anybody else? Yeah. The majority of ulama, they, 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 we hold the opinion that the Prophet was unlettered. I like the word unlettered more than illiterate. Because illiterate assumes some sort of, he's like not intelligent. But the Prophet was extremely intelligent, but he could not read or write. So he was unlettered. And, you know, the reason is obvious, is that, that no one can claim that he wrote the Qur'an. So the Prophet was not like a well-known poet, or, you know, was not, had like all these things written. If he did, then everyone would say, like, he just made up the Qur'an. But the fact that he's known as a Nabi al-Ummi, he's known as the unlettered Prophet, it it's further indicates the miraculous nature of the Qur'anic revelation. I mean, one of the things that indicates that. Um, so that's, you know, that's why he is, it is like that. But no one should ever confuse that with intelligence. The Prophet was extremely intelligent, extremely astute. Extremely sharp, sallallahu alaihi wasallam. In addition to the fact that he receives revelation, all of the MBA, by the way, not just Sayyidina Muhammad, but all of the MBA, we believe were extremely uh, intelligent. It would be uh, not becoming of a prophet if they were not, if they had some deficiency in their intelligence. No. Yeah, there's no need to be confused about that. That's like somebody coming telling me the sun rises in the west and sets in the east. So okay, well, that's not true. How can a scholar say that? Yeah, so he's not a scholar. Yeah, I mean, you know, people say stuff all the time, but it doesn't mean it's true. The, the Prophet is known as a Nabi al Ummi, uh, even in non Muslim historical sources. I mean, this is one of his qualities. Even if the Prophet knew how to read and write, that still wouldn't change the miraculous nature of the Quran because it's impossible that somebody could speak this way for 23 years and then speak the way of the hadith for 23 years consistently. Who can do that? Maybe you could do it once or twice, but not for 23 years. So. We don't need a proof that the Qur'an is, is unchanged. I mean, uh, the Qur'an itself challenges somebody to, to find a mistake in it. So I don't ha it's not me that's preserving it. So don't listen to these things. 
لكل داء دواء يستطب به إلا الحماقة أعت من يداويها المتنبي says every, every illness has a medicine except stupidity there is no medicine for it so when you're up against stupidity just you just that's why Allah says say سلامة وإذا خاتبكم الجاهلون قالوا سلامة when the dumb person talks to you ignorant person just say سلامة like Allah says it in a special way like there's a secret in that word so Allah says, you don't waste your time. You know, the only capital that we have in this world is time. So why we... I asked Sheikh Hamza one time. I said, Sheikh Hamza, uh, I, when I was a lot younger, I said, I want you to give me advice uh, about... I said, do you have any regrets? And then he said, I asked one of my teachers that question, and he told me the only thing he ever regretted in life is the time that he spent writing responses to the people that critique him. And criticize him. Right? I don't need to respond to that. That's just, I mean, that's, you know. That's like I brought a cow and I called it a pig. Look at the pig. A'uzu billah, you eat the pig. This biryani has pig in it. Astaghfirullah, this is haram. But it's a cow, man. It's not a pig. It's the same thing. The Prophet had a pen and then he wrote, you know, secret uh, new surah. And only this man, Tariq Salah, he has the new surah and he's the new Prophet. Hey, you know. Oh, come on, man. You can't respond to that stuff. Not that I'm saying you are. I'm just saying, you know. And all the Ghamdi stuff, same thing, man. Come on, we don't have time for this. We, we have critical work to do. We have to figure out the parking situation. We have to figure out Ramadan preparation. We have serious work to do, guys. This guy's getting married. We have serious work to do. Yeah, Brother Mohsen. Yeah, she was Mormon, uh, raised a Mormon, but then, uh, yeah. And then she now professes to support us. Um, and then there are 300 people, non-Muslims, who can be seen who would have to leave and be targeted for insulting because they believe that. So I'm in such uh, overwhelmed. Yeah, I saw it. Lost her husband and son, and she's so strong, smiling all the time and saying, "This is my faith." So I, I'd, I'd like to share your thoughts with with us. I think leadership is about uh, at that level, at like a government level. I think leadership really is about doing what's best for your citizens, all your citizens. And everything that we've been talking about since we've gotten to the Medina part of the seerah, we see how the Prophet tried to create a new identity that, that surpassed simply religious identity. So when he creates this state of Medina, he says, we're, all, we're different, but we're together because we have the same fundamental needs and responsibilities. And I think that this is what she has been able to capture the best is that she sees the Muslims in New Zealand as not a weird community or an extra community. She sees them as her community. 
And I think that she would have done the same if it happened to any other community, if it happened to indigenous people or if it happened to you know, Jews or Mormons or whatever, or I don't know the religious breakup of New Zealand, but she would have responded the same exact way, I believe, because she sees that the, she was hurt. She feels hurt because these are her people and she's responsible for their safety. And that's what a leader, you know, that's what a leader, Omar ibn al-Khattab, he said, I'm afraid, you know, if a wagon breaks somewhere in a street, Allah will ask me, Yom al-Qiyamah, why I didn't fix it. So it's a real big burden to be that kind of leader. It's not about self-aggrandizement and you know all of that. And I, and I, I believe she's genuine. I mean, everything that she said, she, she, she's gone way, way beyond, I think, what she's needed to do or say. Uh, definitely, I mean, I don't know what's more inspiring, the, the Muslim's reaction or her reaction, to be honest. I mean, I, I think we're all indebted to her. I think she's lifted us all up. By her, by her response, not we're not going to call, say his name. We're only going to remember the name of those that we lost. You know, passing this new gun law, uh, that shows that she cares, and that's the responsibilities, you know, of a leader. Is you're responsible not just for the macro issues, but also for the micro issues. So I think she's an example, honestly, for us all. I, I pray Allah Subhanahu wa Taala continues to guide her and to to bless her in that country. I mean, they're wonderful people. And to Allah to protect that community. Um, I mean, I, I don't know if you read the transcript of the khutbah from today, from the imam in New Zealand. I mean, that was also really spectacular. Uh, it's very emotional. You know, it's just, I'm overwhelmed too. Uh, you know, who, New Zealand, who would have ever thought <laughs> anything like this would happen in a country like New Zealand? But I think the fact that that they're open like that shows that there's something right about that society. It's not just Islam. The way that their society is, maybe the fact it's that they're an island and they're detached, but they're also not detached because they're part of the commonwealth, whereas like Japan is an island, but it really is detached. I mean, it's a totally different type of situation. Maybe that has something to do with it. Uh, their history, the indigenous people, I mean, it's just unbelievably inspiring. Unbelievably inspiring. I hope other leaders take heed. As for our, as far as our leaders, you know, I don't think we can look to them for that kind of inspiration. Unfortunately, we don't have that. We're always concerned about security and you know this and that. And um, also, I think the advantage is that they're a minority. Islam is a minority there, so they don't. They're not. They're not enough people to to cause any type of concern. Whereas in the Muslim majority world, you have all these Muslim groups and activists and politi politics and Islamists and everyone trying to take power from the other person. So it's also like a you know a, a, a always tense situation. Yeah, the Prophet said that wisdom is the lost property of the believer. Wherever they find it, it belongs to them. So she's our example, right? That's that's that belong that example belongs to us. We have to be like that. If we're leaders, that's how we have to be like. You know, the Prophet said you can't sleep at night and knowing that your neighbor is hungry. That's on an individual level. Can you imagine what it is to be in charge of people? Um, whether we have an organization or a company or you know, you're a mayor or whatever, you, you have to make sure that people are safe. And, and, and that's, I think, a perspective that unfortunately in this culture we don't have. We don't have that. Yeah.
oh this is a tremendous this is a tremendous thing that has happened it's tragic but this the the hikmah behind this the the what this will pave for us the coming you know several years we we can't even comprehend that yeah absolutely remember the prophet sallallahu whenever whenever the whenever he was in a situation where he could have taken revenge or he could have cursed somebody or he could have caused somebody to perish he said allah forgive my people because they do not know so he considered the quraysh his people he considered his enemy his people and that's what jacinda is showing that she she really genuinely considers the muslim community as her people you know beginning like with that hadith learning to say sallallahu alaihi wasallam and every, all these like little thing why would she even go you know through that effort she could have just like showed up or she could have just paid for the funeral cost like she said or whatever but because she's like these are my people Yeah, alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. We should all go visit. So for us as a community, because we've seen testimony of Anthony of Rumu, like the leadership that she has shown, and, and we are a community, and that we want to lead by example. So what are the lessons that you would give us to use the best that we think we can change in government behavior in communities where I think it's I think the answer to that is all in our values. The values that we learn from the Prophet Sallallahu are values that we need to practice not just in this setting, but in, in our entire life. That's the point of why, why we're doing all of this. Is we, we're not just doing, it's easy to do this here because we're kind of all on the same page. But no, we want to carry these values outside. So the value of respecting people for people being able to differentiate between what people say and do and the person themselves. A lot of people have ignorance, a lot of people have hate, a lot of people have misinformation, and we honestly cannot blame them for that. So when you see somebody like that, you should take pity. You should feel bad that that person has all of this hate. It's like very acidic inside them. Like, why are you living with all of that hate? Remember the man, the Prophet said, uh, I'm going to show you somebody who's going to paradise, and the Sahaba walks in the room, so the other Sahaba is like, I'm going to hang out with him for a few days to see what, why. Why did the Prophet say this? And at the end of the story, the Sahaba tells the man, you know, the Prophet said, you're going to paradise. And the man was shocked. He's like, me? He's like, yeah. He said, you're like walking, you know, a man walking in paradise. What is it that you do special? He's like, I don't do anything. He's like, well, you know, every night before I sleep, I make sure that I don't have any hate in my heart for anyone. That act, the Prophet said, is an act of the people of paradise. Meaning that you don't live with that hatred inside you. You don't have time for that. Um, so when people you know, say dumb things, stupid things, wrong things, that's what they are. It's dumb, stupid, and wrong. So you don't take it personally because you're not Islam's lawyer. 
You don't have to defend Islam. Allah will defend Islam. Allah will defend Islam His way. It might take the, the thing in Christ church to defend Islam. It might take this Jacinda person that we've never even heard of before to defend Islam. This is Allah's hikmah. We can't decide that. So we don't have to feel like I have to do it. You know, like the Danish cartoon Christ, I remember when that came. Why, why are people reacting like that? All you're doing is emphasizing the wrong image that they have of Islam in the first place. So for us, we have to be true to our values. Honesty, transparency, true uh, philanthropy, meaning we love philanthropies, to love human, to love humanity, you know, philanthropists, to love pe people, to really care about the well-being of people, even if we see in them, you know, something that's off. But to really care about them, not to, not to judge people, not to pass them off, to treat people with the dignity that Allah created in the human condition. I know that's hard, especially when you meet people that are ignorant and insulting. I mean, I remember I was in, in line once in King's Dominion with the twins, so I had like, and they were very young, so I had them both. And the man in front of me, he had a daughter and he looked, he's like, don't look at him, he just thinks you're a piece of property. You know, and like the twins were like, you know, like four or something, you know. And I, I mean, I did not act in the most prophetic way, I, I have to admit. I won't, I won't tell you what I did, but... You know, that person, he needs some love, man, because why, you know, here I am in like, you know, uh, waterproof stuff, we're going in this water park, and it's, you know, very hot in Kings of Me. I mean, so like, la, la, it took me a minute to, oh my God, he's talking about me and Islam, and, you know, but people are, I just feel sorry for that man now. When I think back about it, I could have acted better, but, you know, but everyone in the line was, was offended for me. And that's the other thing is that people genuinely, I believe, are good. Uh, if you give them the chance, they're good. I think this country, these peop people in this country are genuinely good. And look at, look at Friday prayer. I don't know what happened today, but look at last Friday, how many guests we had. Oh my God, the emails won't stop. I wish they would stop. They won't stop coming. We want to come. We want to support. I was like, we don't need any more support. We're going to, you know, it's, we're too stuffed, you know. There's a Muslim women's uh, biker group. Now they want to go around and like guard the masajid with their motorcycles. I mean, it's, this has brought out like so, so much creativity and so much good from our neighbors. People care about us because people are good. Why? Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created people. He created us this way. There's khair, there's goodness in all of us. So when you see somebody that's messed up, I, think, I just think we got to feel sorry for them and be like, maybe I can be their path, you know, I'll just be a smiley face. That's why the Prophet said, even smiling is a form of charity. Because that person, you might be the only person that smiles in that person's face all day. Respond. Yeah. yeah. Respond with that which is better. Maybe that person you'll become, you know, close, intimate friends. Like that Dutch guy that, like, I'm going to set out to, like, destroy Islam and he ended up converting. It's the same thing, you know. You have to have patience, yeah. Yeah. Except those who have a, a good yeah but that the discipline is that you have to find a way to separate 
yourself from that issue. Not to take it. We say not. To, don't take it personally. That's really what it's about. Is you have to separate yourself from that and be like, he's talking about something else. He's talking about someone else. <laughs>